Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week's episode of Garden DC, we're joined by Michael Judd of Ecologia, Edible and Ecological Landscape Design in Frederick, Maryland. He's also the author of For the Love of Pawpaws and Edible Landscaping. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Kathy. I'm, I'm pleased to be here and always happy to talk about pawpaws. Yay! So we'll, we'll take a deep dive into pawpaws, how to grow them, how to eat them, how to make them flourish, although they seem to be pretty prolific on their own. Uh, but first, we want to talk a bit about you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. I, I'm from Frederick, Maryland, and I'm living here just north of downtown. Uh, we live at the entrance of the watershed on a beautiful property, about 25 acres, uh, mostly wooded with a stream that runs through it. In all the open areas that we have, we've planted all kinds of different types of fruits, uh, berries, nuts, a lot of companion plants. It's a, a real cornucopia uh, of plants and fruits and food uh, where we do a lot of education and workshops. And kind of the crowning jewel of our place is, is our circular straw bale home. Uh, which some people come just to see that. And then once they're here, they get to see and learn about uh, our permaculture practices and, and see the abundance of our food forests and gardens. And uh, it's, 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 we call it heaven. We love it here. Um, but I didn't always uh, live here. I spent 18 years living in rural Latin America. Uh, working with tropical growing systems uh, down there, working with tropical fruits and nuts, bamboos, palms, uh, again, working with diversity and always with a focus on creating sort of food security and seeing what works well without a lot of input, which is one of the reasons that I love the pawpaw. And also, one of the reasons that uh, uh, I'm so in love with the pawpaw is that I spent all those years growing its relatives in the custard apple family. And coming back to the north, having missed a lot of those plants, uh, I've just been so pleased to find uh, uh, pretty much a tropical fruit that grows in the north. It really is very unique, which, which we'll talk about. Um, so yeah, I'm here now, got a, a family going. I've got a one-year-old baby and a six-year-old uh, wild child who, who, who they're, they're just used to, you know, living in the woods and eating fruits. So uh, it's, it's, it's a blessing uh, to be here. Wonderful. And I was able to come and visit your homestead, Long Creek Homestead, uh, a little while back with the Garden Writers Association. And we had did a little tour of the grounds and we were all amazed by your home and for those listeners who heard straw bale house and are thinking he literally lives up in stacked straw bales can you describe the construction a little bit sure uh it's a circular house 
And yes, we, we round wood timber framed it, which means that we, we kept all of our uprights and rafters in the round and all the woods from our land. Uh, when I was designing the house, uh, Hurricane Sandy hit in, and it was literally a windfall of trees uh, that gave us our beginnings, uh, mostly poplar, because that's what we have on our, on our land, which is nice and straight and easy to work with. It's been a real pleasure uh, to build our house with that wood. And uh, then, yeah, then we infilled it with straw bales. And on the outside, we've done a traditional lime plaster, uh, meaning that we, we made a putty out of lime and let it sit uh, for two to three years as it strengthened and then mixed that with sand and, and applied it as the plaster. And this is important uh, so that the bales can actually breathe. You, you don't want to seal off straw bales with a cement stucco or some kind of siding because the bales literally need to breathe in and out. And you feel that living in the house. The house is wonderful to live in. And, and part of that is that it actually kind of breathes in and out with the outside, yet is very comfortable year round. Uh, we heat it with uh, a finish designed uh, masonry stove, uh, which only takes one, one armful of wood a day to heat our whole home. And in the summer now, it's, it's wonderfully cool. We have a living roof. It keeps the heat out and thick straw bale walls. Uh, we have earthen floors. It's it's a real beauty. A, a lot of people come uh, to our Paw Paw Fest or many of our other events throughout the year just to see the house. Uh, and then when they're here, they 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 get hooked into learning about uh, you know permaculture design and food forests and growing mushrooms and all these uncommon but easy to grow fruits. So uh, it's it's a real beacon. Definitely. And so unexpected um, in, in a part of Maryland that's just popping up with McMansions and um, outer sprawl suburbia. It's nice to see. Yes. And, and we went the extra the extra distance on the house uh, to make it, you know, very nice, uh, very, you know, finely finished to show other people, you know, who are looking to build houses and, and want style and comfort and aesthetics that uh, this type of this type of building can offer all of that. Uh, so our house really is a showpiece. Hmm. In your first book, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist is, and then the subtitle is How to Have Your Yard and Eat It Too. Um, so the key word in there I wanted to dive into a little bit is permaculture. Could you define that for our listeners? <laughs> the elevator pitch for permaculture, <laughs> the nutshell, so to say. Uh, permaculture is a, it's a design system um, that really is based on observing how natural ecosystems work. And it's almost like biomimicry in a way where it's like we see how they work together and we, and we recognize those as patterns and then when we come to look at our landscapes and what we want to do with them, we imitate those patterns. And in that way, we're, we're lining up with what is already successful. Uh, so for an example, uh, you look at a healthy forest and it's got many layers, uh, overstory, midstory, understory, shrub layer, you know, ground cover, vines running up through it all, all living symbiotically and you know, very intimately. And so there's a pattern there of how they work together. Now, we're, we're not necessarily going to design that on our, on our yard, 
But if we want to plant a fruit tree, we think, okay, well, how can we learn from that and create a little ecosystem that supports our fruit tree versus just kind of sticking it out there in a sea of grass with, you know, marauding weed whackers and lawnmowers and and maybe a little mulch ring uh, doesn't really give it much support, actually puts us on the hook to take care of it. So it's, it's sort of creating a larger space there, what I would kind of call a patch. You could think of it as a food forest patch because a food forest doesn't need to be anything large. It can be, you know, eight foot by eight foot. The idea is that you're planting these companion plants, if you will, sort of perennial companion plants that support your fruit tree or your other, you know, main producer there. So it's, it's looking at larger ecosystems, and then sort of taking that and simplifying it for design in our own landscapes. For understory, for under, say, a fig tree, or somebody might have a a small apple tree, uh, what type of perennials do you recommend? Uh, oh, I've, well, obviously the pawpaw. So, so also in permaculture, we, we observe. So we see what is doing well naturally and work with that. Uh, so the pawpaw is a great example. One of the reasons that I work so much with the pawpaw and I'm, a, and I'm a great fan and proponent of it is that it just naturally does well here. It doesn't take a lot of effort uh, to bring out you know, the qualities that, that we seek, which is often, you know, good fruit production and quality, uh, cause the energy is already here. Um, same with the persimmon, the persimmon is easily already here. Uh, the mulberry is easily already here. Uh, and there are some that are not native that also, uh, just do very well, uh, to, to keep an eye on. So when I talk about those many layered stories, um, you know, that works well in the tropics where there's high light, uh, you know, intensity and you can kind of stack those stories. When we come up more northern, uh, we have to spread that out a bit. And what I usually do is I'll sort of take that that uh, sort of that mid that mid canopy or your small tree canopy and let that be sort of the larger uh, overstory, so to say, and then I sort of work from there down. So let's say let's say you have uh, an Asian persimmon tree, which is lovely, small tree, 12, 15 feet maybe, uh, and you have a large patch around it. Uh, you would you wouldn't want to put anything larger in there that would shade that, but along the outer edges of that, you know, you could put in you know a gooseberry or a black currant. Um, you could also mix in some other herbs that you like to pull from, whether it be medicinals like wormwood. Uh, you could also stick in things that are pollinators, things like tick seed. Uh, and then I also always like to put in nitrogen fixing plants uh, that help feed the whole system as well. So things like lupins um, or the um, indigo bush, uh, things that uh, that I can also kind of chop and drop. That's a term we use in permaculture where we're sort of planting our mulch that will then either, we'll either chop and drop it. So it's right there in place, or it'll pulse itself like comfrey. Comfrey will grow up and it'll die back and it'll feed the soil. Uh, But you can jump in there and cut it down two or three times during the season and you can pulse that and mulch. And you're also creating more flowering and benefit for the bees. So these are just ways to work with plants to sort of pulse a little ecosystem, you know, that also benefits your your main, uh, you know, fruit producer. Yeah, I find comfrey to be a, a great understory plant that just obviously can easily take over 
as the wormwood you mentioned. Uh, but if you're going to come in and, and chop it down and keep on top of it, I think that's a, a great way to add nutrients back into the soil. Yeah. And it, and it holds the moisture and yeah, it builds the fertility and keeps out, uh, you know, your, your weeding, so to say. So I, you know, I guess it depends, you know, how much of a space you have and how interactive you want to be with it. Uh, you know, I've got about three acres of food forests, you know, mixed orchards and things here. Uh, so I, I need help. Uh, so I use a lot of ground covers uh, out there to do that. And I actually have three types of comfrey here. I've got the, the common known one, which is the stand, standing tall, often called the Russian uh, uh, comfrey, which, yes, can spread a little bit by seed, um, usually just by the, you know, if, if someone disturbs the roots, that's how it spreads. But then I have two others. I have one called heed coat, which is a runner. It sends out runners and it'll spread beautifully. And it gets about 20, 24 inches tall, has a light blue flower, flowers quickly in the spring and creates some of the first bee fodder out there. Uh, but then I use it and it helps hold the space under my trees. Now, yes, it excludes, you know, some other diversity, but I, uh, you know, I don't really have the bandwidth to be doing a lot under each one of my trees. So I appreciate using these ground covers uh, for that. Hmm. And aside from your family pets, do you have any animals in this food forest? <laughs> no, not currently. Not currently. Not with kids. Kids are my, my critters right now. <laughs> Um, uh, we, we have in the past had chickens and I did some, I did a, I did a one round of woodland pigs. Um, it, no, my focus is mostly on the plants and, you know, I have a, I have a small nursery and so I, I try to dedicate my time to plants and, and family. Um, so at this stage, no, but, uh, we'll, we'll see what the future brings. I know the kids, the kids and my wife are talking about animals, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> Okay. And so from the edibles that you're growing, are you able to provide most of what your family is consuming? And and what are you harvesting in the last few weeks? Uh, so first part, no, I think it's extremely hard to, to provide um, for, for what a family consumes. It's possible, but it's kind of a full-on dedication. Um, so, but we have a great community of growers in the Frederick area. So we do a lot of trade and a lot of barter. And what I have in abundance are, of course, my fruits. So I have a lot of black currants. Uh, I've trialed a lot of black currants. You know, we're on that sort of southern edge for them. And so a lot of what you'll read about uh, black currants does not pertain to us. Uh, but consort, uh, the variety consort does really well here. And so I get an abundance of those. Uh, and I'll usually make, you know, medicinal syrups, jams, uh, or sort of cocktails out of those. Uh, and, and so that's something I often will trade. Uh, we get obviously a lot of pawpaws, enough to have a festival. I've got over 60 trees here, uh, different stages of growth, probably 25 different varieties at least. Uh, cultivars of pawpaws. So we get a lot of pawpaws, which mostly get consumed and bought during our our festival and our other events during September. I do nursery days and tasting days during September apart from our festival. So those that's kind of nice. People come to me and and, and and the fruit, you know, goes home. I don't have to, you know, cart it around. 
Uh, let's see what else. Uh, Aronia, you know, the, uh, the I, I want to rename this, you know, it, it, it's commonly known as Chokeberry. And I, I want to rename it Wonderberry. And, you know, because it really is. It's a phenomenal, ornamental, upright, uh, fast growing, tough shrub that is very productive. Uh, it puts out these large droops of large berries. They're, they're like purple black berries. They look like really big blueberries um, that harvest now in August. And what's nice is the birds don't get them right away. They'll get them if they go into winter, but you can go out there and take your time to pick them and they pick very easily. And then, so yeah, they get their name chokeberry because you don't want to eat them fresh. But when you cook them down like you do with elderberry, they take on this deep, rich berry flavor that reminds me of old-fashioned pies. Um, and so I will, I will mix that with elderberries and gummies and other berries that I've harvested. And I'll make syrups and I'll freeze those for the kids to eat as sort of ice, ices. Um, I'll mix a little bit of honey in and often mix it in with bourbon or something else and let that just be a perfectly made cocktail and that preserves it. I can tell you that's good for trade. <laughs> I get a lot of, I get a lot of good trade for that one. Um, and elderberries, I mentioned elderberries, the American elderberry is very productive for us, uh, very fast growing, very productive. And again, uh, I will harvest that and make different, uh, syrups and, um, medicines and cocktails out of that. So a lot of, a lot of what we're being extra productive with are, are the fruits and berries and soon to be chestnuts. Uh, I'm a big proponent of growing nuts and especially the hybrid chestnuts um, that are very productive and uh, disease resistant and produce every year. So soon I'll be having lots of chestnuts to work with and probably make chestnut flour and, you know, trade that or make some delicious uh, chestnut, um, you know, baked goods. I'm sure those will trade well. So yeah, uh, there's a lot of other things, but that's, that's, that's the short list. Not a short list at all. <laughs> so yeah. And started to get really hungry listening to that list, but, and I've noticed that especially for the elderberry syrup, um, that's being really popular now for, for boosting your immune system. And I've noticed the price is almost doubling in the last six months. So good that you have a homegrown stock of that available. Yeah. Well, you know, it's that the purple and black dark colored berries are the very high ones in antioxidants. Uh, and, and so the aronia, I think, doesn't get, you know, I think elderberry has been very well marketed. And yes, it is great because um, it has high antioxidants, but so does the aronia. And so do the black and purple capped raspberries. They actually have the highest, I think. Um, so like those berries in general are very healthy, very easy to grow. So, you know, grow your own medicine, um, is, is, can be ornamental and, and very easy. So what started you on pawpaw growing? Were there pawpaw trees on the property when you, uh, moved in? Uh, nearby and there is a wild patch that's been growing, uh, since I moved in, interestingly enough, um, in the woods, in the shade. So, uh, a lot of what people know Paul Paul's as is as an understory. And so the Paul Paul, yes, is the Paul Paul is very adaptive. So, you know, I, it, it can grow in all kinds of scenarios. But the most commonly experienced one uh, is that it grows as an understory. And oftentimes when you see it in the shade of the forest, 
it's growing as a patch. And that patch, depending on the shade density, could be anything from about eight feet tall. If it starts to get some light, it could easily get lanky and get up to 20 feet tall. But oftentimes they're growing in a patch and that often is just one plant. So there's a mother in the middle and then she sent out all of her children, all those suckers shoot up around her. So actually sometimes when you see a patch, it's all genetically just one plant. And there is some real speculation that it's possible that some of these, um, these roots of these plants could be a thousand or more years old. And they're just sending up, resending up shoots, which can typically live 20 to 30 years. But that root system can be ancient, which I find really cool. So, so, so that's in the understory. So, and then if the pawpaw comes out to partial sun, uh, like people experience along the CNO Canal, you'll, you'll get a sort of a tall, lanky tree, maybe 20, 25 feet tall, and it'll have some fruits, right? Now, if you take the pawpaw out into full sun, it turns into this beautiful pyramid, pyramid-shaped tree, maybe 15 to 20 feet tall, and can be very productive. Uh, you know, we're talking, you know, 30 to 50 pounds as a potential productivity of fruit in full sun. So again, the pawpaw is very adaptive. So these are all things that draw me to it, uh, that have excited me uh, to, to grow it because it's eagerness as a species to be adaptive. Now, remember this, this is the only member of the, the tropical and subtropical custard apple family that migrated North, you know, over millenniums on receding glaciers and in the guts of, you know, giant mastodons and sloths to, you know, come up all the way into Southern Ontario, you know, naturally on its own. And it's basically a tropical fruit tree. And as you look at it, it's tropical. It's these huge lobed leaves. The fruit itself is one of the best tropical fruits I've ever had. And remember, I grew and lived in you know the tropics for 18 years. And I consider the pawpaw one of the best tasting fruits. Uh, and it really is a custard apple that's living in the north. It's just phenomenal. So I think just from the just from that aspect of like this is so unique. Uh, that's that's drawn me to really want to work with it, and then it marries my life of growing in the tropics and living here. Uh, you know, it, it sort of helps bridge them for me. Mm-hmm. And for those who haven't tasted a pawpaw before, um, and you might know it by other names, sometimes it's called I think the Indiana banana is one of the nicknames I've heard, but there are various nicknames for it. So you, you might have tried it under another name. Uh, many people equate the the taste to somewhere between a banana and a mango. Yes. So, you know, the Latin is a semina triloba and uh, it has a range of flavors. Now, this is another uh, thing to kind of pull apart here. A lot of people that experience a wild pawpaw are not necessarily experiencing its full potential. That's not to say there are not wonderful wild pawpaws out there, because they are. And some of today's popular uh, cultivars come from wild found pawpaws. But typically, you know, your wild pawpaw can be a real hit or miss. It's it's somewhat equivalent to thinking of a, a wild crab apple and a golden delicious, right? So so a lot of people are out, you know, in the woods in the fall. September in our neck of the woods is when the pawpaws are ripening. 
and you know they'll they'll maybe come across a pawpaw that's been on the ground for a couple of days, and get all excited. Oh, there's a pawpaw! There's a pawpaw! You know, and and take a bite out of it, and are dismayed because uh, you know it's it's gotten a little funky because they 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 ripen quickly like a banana. Uh, but then even a wild pawpaw in its perfect state can have you know astringency or, or bitter notes to it and may not give the, the best impression whereas if you're working with a pawpaw that's that's been selected uh, or intentionally bred you know as a cultivar you've got a very different experience you've got a large uh, like mango sized you know fruit one sometimes upwards of two pounds that inside has a creamy flesh uh, that's like custard and does have an array, an aroma of flavors of banana and pineapple and mango. Uh, really, when I ask people when they first try their pawpaw, I'm like, what do you taste? And I get all their favorite tropical flavors fed back to me. So I think it just reminds people of, you know, their favorite tropical fruits. And it is, it, it is truly exquisite when you have a perfectly ripened pawpaw from, you know, good genetics. It, it is exquisite. It's an exquisite fruit. Um, you know, now, now I say that. Now, there are people who, who are challenged with the consistency, you know, it's, and that's just because it's, it's custard-like. Uh, but it's, I'm surprised but some people don't like that. But otherwise, the flavor is, is usually very pleasing. Now, of course, there's a range in the flavors in the cultivars. So on one end of your cultivars, a very popular cultivar is, is Shenandoah, uh, developed by Neil Peterson, who's the Mahatma of pawpaws uh, and lives in Harpers Ferry. And, and I'm very fortunate to say is a good friend of mine. I've learned a lot from. So he he de he's developed uh, many pawpaws, but released seven of them and named them after U.S. rivers uh, with indigenous names. So Shenandoah is uh, is a popular one because it it has a it has a lighter colored flesh, which means it's more on the white creamy side, and it has lighter sweeter notes to it. Uh, now, if you go to the other end of the spectrum, another one of Neil's. Uh, cultivars is called Susquehanna, and it is a darker, uh, richer colored pawpaw with a, uh, a sort of a, a deep yellow, almost orangey type uh, flesh to it, and it has very strong, um, almost pungent flavors to it, uh, as well as being sweet, but much richer. And so, you know, even within the pawpaw, uh, world, you can select, you know, sort of your preference uh, uh, along that spectrum. So, you know, it's, it's just very diverse, uh, which is why we have a festival so people can come and try and see what they like. Um, and then, of course, within those trees, there's also characteristics of their productivity and, uh, you know, even their ornamental qualities. And how long from planting a seed or maybe a sapling uh, to getting that fruit to be able to eat it? Now, this is a bit of a trick question because uh, it depends on your site and your conditions. So what I, what I like to say is when, you're, when your tree reaches about six feet tall, uh, that's when you can start to expect some production. Now, if you've got a good site and you've got good soil and consistent uh, moisture, because consistent moisture is the key for pawpaws, 
they do not like to be in a wet site. They need drainage, but they also need, you know, consistent moisture and humidity, which is why they love our area so much. Um, so if it's happy and in full sun, and it'll grow easily to six feet in six years from seed and begin production. So if you buy a grafted tree that's already, you know, two or three years old, uh, you could easily start getting fruit in two or three years as well. But again, sun is the, is the factor for fruit production. This is pretty much across the board with fruits. Uh, you're going to get fruit relative to how much sun you have. So yes, the pawpaw will grow in the shade, just like the juneberry will grow in the shade. But you're only going to get fruit relative to how much sun it gets. Right? So if it's partial, partial sun, you're going to get partial fruit. You got full sun, you're going to get full fruit. And then, of course, there's the, the you know, you need cross-pollination. So you need a genetically different pawpaw. It's not a male-female thing. It's just a genetically different pawpaw. So you either need two seedlings or two different cultivars or a cultivar and a seedling uh, to cross-pollinate and keep them. My, my ideal recommended spacing is, is 12 feet for pawpaws. Uh, you can do them closer. And if you have very limited space, you can plant them in the same hole at the same time. Uh, and they'll grow out as one tree and cross-pollinate each other. Wow, that's great advice for somebody with a small space garden because, it, uh, you know, you have limited amount for cross-pollinating and they just can be the same cultivar, but just two different plants. Well, the same... <laughs> The same size, uh, you know, any two young pawpaw trees, uh, but they would, they would want to be genetically different. So they'd have to be different cultivars if you're using cultivars. Uh, but there's, you know, now there's, and this is what I sell a lot too, or what we call select seedlings. So now that, now that there's these orchards of all cultivars, the seeds of these pawpaws have only been pollinated by these, you know, these, these great genetics. So when you grow the seeds out, they're going to come, you know, true to, you know, their two parents. And if their two parents are really good uh, genetically, then you're going to get good genetics in your seedling. And these are becoming more common and they're called select seedlings. And that's often what I sell. I call them Mike Select Seedlings. They're they're from my grafted trees. Um, but you know, grafting gives you the absolute knowledge of which parrot it is. Um, but what you want to be wary of is buying a pawpaw where whoever's selling it cannot tell you anything about its parents. So if it's a seedling, and they can't tell you where it came from. You know, it could have been collected from along the CNO Canal from from a pawpaw. You know, that's that's going to be full of seeds, not much flesh, and you know, bitter. Uh, and if you've got precious space, I wouldn't, um, you know, I wouldn't allocate it to that. So yes, you can plant them in the same hole. This goes for a lot of fruit trees that have you know similar growth size and patterns. And if you have limited space, plant them together uh, in the same hole, or you know, one foot apart. And they will grow at a similar pace and they will work it out. And of course, you can help prune and, and help shape them so that uh, they, they really do fit your space. And I keep a lot of my pawpaws. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, in full sun and happy, they'll get 15 feet tall. Uh, beautiful, though. Pyramid shaped trees, not 
troubled by pest or disease, uh, just gorgeous uh, for even just landscape purposes. Uh, but I keep mine at about eight feet tall by just pretty much pruning, you know, pruning back the central leader on it. And I'll even shorten my laterals back to four feet. So, you know, I'll keep it almost like a shrub. I'll keep it, you know, four feet by eight feet. Uh, and it responds very well to that. Actually, you know, we'll get more fruit production and I'll be able to easily reach my fruit because I've learned you don't want to climb a pawpaw tree. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't sound like it would be healthy for, for somebody to do. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely a warning here. They have, they have brittle branches. Um, as I found out, um, my father, and one of the ways that I know the pawpaw does well is by being planted together was my father, uh, many, many, probably 20 years ago now, ordered a pair of pawpaws and just healed them in and then forgot about them. <laughs> and, and and so they grew together and they're beautiful. It looks like one big tree. It's in my book. Uh, but if you look close, there's actually two trunks there. Um, and, and it's full of fruit, which tempts you to want to climb it and go out there and get that fruit. And some years ago, I was I was doing just that. And uh, for, I was holding on to a branch above me, reaching for a fruit, and the, and the branch I was standing on broke. And I literally just was swinging. Uh, and gratefully, that branch didn't break. But uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a hairy moment. Um, and, and the last time I've climbed a pawpaw tree. Good precautionary tale. <laughs> so, um, you mentioned grafting. What stock are you using to graft onto it? And have you ever grafted two different cultivars onto one? So another way to save space. Yes. So I love grafting. I'm a grafting ninja. I graft everything I can. I'm a big fan of it. I teach it. Grafting is actually quite straightforward and easy. I don't think people realize uh, that it's really not, uh, you know, a tricky thing. So uh, any, any rootstock is, would be good, you know? So if you did find a wild seedling or if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, shucks, I planted a pawpaw and I don't know what it was, you can graft it. Uh, and you'd be surprised they graft well. Uh, you know, of course, different trees and species have different uh, ease or difficulty grafting, but pawpaws are quite easy. They're, they're right behind apples and pears. I, I, have very, I, have, I have in the 90% success rate with my pawpaw grafts. So, so anything would work. Even your wild pawpaw would work. In some ways, your wild pawpaw might have some, some better genetics as a rootstock, but um, so, so select seedlings can also easily be, be grafted as well. So, uh, yes, I multi-graft, uh, uh, some of my trees, you know, even though I have plenty of space, uh, if I'm coming up, you know, so, so I'll do, I'll do grafting sometimes in, in the pot, but a lot of times, uh, for my own trees, I'll just plant my seedlings. I like to get my seeds, my seedlings in the ground the first year that I grow them. Because the pawpaw has a very deep tap root. So very interestingly, when a pawpaw seed germinates, and I cover this in my book, uh, you know, the, the, the tricks and easy ways to, to sort of somewhat quickly germinate pawpaw seeds. Because if you don't know the tricks, they can take a long time to germinate. But I do it. I get them germinate in two weeks. And what happens first when the pawpaw seed germinates is it begins to send down a tap root and it will send down a nine inch deep tap root before it even starts to send up a stem. Um, so it's really all about the roots with the pawpaw. It's a tap root, very much like a nut tree, and it's actually quite fleshy and very brittle. Uh, so I like to respect the pawpaw roots. I grow them in 12 inch 
uh, deep pots or deeper. So if I germinate my seeds, or I do germinate my seeds usually in, in February and March, um, and I can leave them actually in the dark in, a, in sort of a basement room where it's warm for you know a month after they've germinated because they don't need light because there's no stem coming up. So I can I don't have a greenhouse and I don't need one and I can grow you know four or five hundred pawpaws uh, with a very you know limited setup which I love so and then um, let me lose my train of thought here so okay so if I do that in February and March I like to plant those trees that fall you know in late September early October when you know the the temperature is cooling down. Uh, you know, all the way, you know, into early November, I'll plant pawpaws. And that way, that tap root is, is, is not getting restricted and can fully express itself when I plant it. It can keep going down and establish itself and become a much stronger tree. Uh, if I'm going to keep it for more than a year, I like to put it into a deeper pot, like a 14 or 16 inch pot. And I try to keep up with that tap root. So I always recommend people to try and get their pawpaws young uh, if they can, you know, get them as year old or two year old. When you're going past two years old and you're buying a pawpaw, that root has been compromised. And I'm not saying that it won't still grow and be productive, but to a degree you've, you know, you're... You're, you're chancing that it's not going to establish as well. And I would say that goes for almost all fruit trees. Uh, bigger is not better. And I write about that on my, on my website in our nursery blog, uh, that you're really shopping for root health in general, and certainly with pawpaws. So anyway, so, so, so I'll put it in the fall, and then often that next spring, I'll graft it or I'll let it establish another year and then I'll come out and I'll do what's called site grafting and I'll just graft it in place. And oftentimes, you know, if my pawpaw has two or three strong branches, I'll graft each each branch with a different cultivar. And when you mentioned pruning before, what time of year are you doing that pruning? Late winter, similar with many of my other fruit trees. And that's when you can gather your cyan wood. You know, if you're graft, you know, if you're pruning off of a cultivar, you can keep that. The end last year's growth uh, is is your cyan wood, which then you would um, you know put in your refrigerator, keep moist, uh, and then wait for the pawpaws to leaf out, which is later than most trees. Uh, so my grafting for those is is usually later spring. Um, once they get going, then I'll come out and then I'll graft them. And again, they do really well, even site grafting without special conditions. And a few things we haven't mentioned, uh, side benefits almost to pawpaw trees, is that it is a host plant for one of our native butterflies. And the flowers on it are very attractive, although not the best scent. Oh, I think they're okay. <laughs> they are gorgeous. They, they kind of look like these gothic purple roses. Um and it's pretty because they come out before the leaves. So it's all these little bells. And, and I think they've gotten a bad rap, uh, you know, for their smell. Because if you go in and you stick your nose up in one of those, uh, I think probably the closest association, Andy Moore, you know, another Paul Paul author, says the same, that it smells like sourdough, like a sourdough starter. Uh, so, you know, I don't think it's that offensive and I would, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be concerned about it. You know, I would plant it by my front door. I wouldn't be like, oh my gosh, I'm worried it's going to smell. No, definitely not. No, it's a, and it's a very 
brief bloom. It's it's not like it lingers for for so long. But I would not recommend it as a cut flower. I'll just say that. No, it's a very again a very adaptive tree species in the sense that like this year is a good example. Uh, a, a late frost hit the flowers uh, and and killed a lot of them. But then it reflowers. It reflowers and resets fruit. So again, very adaptive tree um for the for yeah for growing fruit and, and then it, it, it's that disease uh insect you know pretty much free and that goes for deer as well uh and part of this is because it has a medicinal compound in its leaves and its twigs uh acetogenins is that what it is acetogenins and it's actually a compound that's being extracted and used uh in cancer and chemotherapies to a lot of success um, but that also keeps the deer and other things from wanting to eat it Mm-hmm. Yeah, deer proof was one of the side benefits I was going to mention because, and that's why when you said it, you can see it along the CNO Canal and other local stream bed parks, and, and why it's so successful is because the deer are not browsing it. Right. Now, I do encourage people to, you know, maybe give it a little fencing for the first two or three years of its life, uh, just because deer will eat anything that's tender. And, and that can be enough to, to really kind of stunt or kill a young plant. But I usually find year three onwards, the trees are getting established. The leaves are getting a little more leathery. Uh, they're certainly not interested. We have herds of deer here, literally, uh, and they don't, they don't eat our, our, our pawpaws at all. And the, the, the fruit either? No, I mean, if it sticks around the ground, uh, you know, the raccoons and possums uh, are more likely to to get after them, but, but in which we have plenty of as well. And I really haven't seen a lot of damage. Now, of course, everyone has different uh, pressures. And, and, and I've heard some people say they can't get a fruit for all the, you know, all the animals. Um, but we, we have plenty. Hmm. And you mentioned picking and climbing the tree, which we don't recommend, of course, to get to the ripe fruit. Um, my understanding had been that they it's not fully ripe until it hits the ground. Well, so yes. So there's a bit of an art uh, to, to picking the pawpaw. And it, it's a lot of it's just kind of feel and learning it. So the pawpaw is very rock hard, usually green and rock hard until it begins to ripen on the tree. And if you're paying attention, you're out there and you go out there and you'd want to squeeze it gently like you would a, a peach, right? And if it just starts to yield, then you know it's you can pick it. And that'll often be two or three, sometimes even four days before it would fall. So that's kind of what you're looking for. You do ideally want to hand pick your pawpaws if you can, because they bruise easily. So if it does fall and it's, you know, and if it's not cushioned, uh, it's still fine, especially if you kind of eat it, you know, within that day or refrigerate, eat it the next day. But where it bruises, of course, it'll, it'll start to darken and, you know, mature quickly. Uh, so it's fine to eat pawpaws if they've just fallen. Uh, but if you hand pick a pawpaw just as it's starting to turn and you put it in your refrigerator, it can be there easily for a week. Uh, but if you hand pick a pawpaw at the perfect time and put it on the counter, you, you would have two or three days you'd want to eat it. Again, kind of very similar to bananas. Um, but the saving grace with pawpaws is that they freeze really well. So, you know, whether that's pulping them and freezing the pulp or I'll just I'll freeze the whole pawpaws because I get inundated and I'm like, ah, I got too many pawpaws. I can't keep them all. And I'll, I'll, I'll put them in a, in a deep chest freezer and I'll freeze them. And that's actually the best way we've learned to pulp them 
is when, you know, freeze them and then bring them out and peel them like you would a potato with a pe peeler. Uh, wait another 10, 15 minutes for it to soften a little bit and then, the, you know, cut it with a knife and opens up and the seeds pop right out. Uh, and then you've got your pulp. I put that in Ziploc bags and then I might refreeze it or go ahead and make something with it. Uh, but it freezes well for one to two years. So it can be put in smoothies year round. So even though it has kind of a fast, uh, you know, shelf life, it can be captured and used throughout the year, which is which is a real saving grace for it. And you'll occasionally see um, some sold at local farmers markets, but it is such a short season and they are bruised so easily um, that it's it's becoming more common, but you have to be there on the right first few weeks of September. Yes, or, or throughout September, but yes, in September, it depends on the year and the weather leading up, but typically we'll, we'll have pawpaws, you know, through most of September and yeah, and handling them. So when I go out and harvest, I'll take a wide box uh, and I will only do a single layer. You know, I won't pile pawpaws on top of pawpaws. That's how careful I am, especially if, you know, I'm going to be selling them or, you know, using them or wanting them to last. I just, I take care uh, in, in how I handle them at every stage. And that makes a difference. Uh, yeah. If you're kind of rough with them, uh, you're, you're shortening, you're shortening their time that you have to work. You have to work with them. For cultivars or varieties, you'd mentioned Shenandoah. Are there others that you would recommend? Yes. I, I am a big fan of Neil's uh, work. He really kind of captured a lot of the best genetics uh, from, from past collectors and crossed them and really kind of waited to see how they stabilized. So I'm a big fan. The Shenandoah is great. Susquehanna is great. Allegheny is another one of his, which I really like. Uh, it's a very productive tree. Sometimes you actually have to thin the fruit because it's so productive. So those are three of my favorites of his. Um, uh, Sunflower is a very popular one, uh, very productive, very strong, and purportedly uh, somewhat self-fertile. So, you know, I wouldn't count on it, but there have been people saying, hey, I've just got this one. It's a sunflower and it's self-fertile. And sometimes a seedling will also prove to be self-fertile. Uh, but again, I wouldn't, wouldn't count on it. More the merrier with pawpaws. Um, uh, P.A. Golden is another popular one. And P.A. Golden is a wild sort of found one. And it has strong flavor notes and maybe just the barest tint of bitterness to it which some people really like. Uh, and it certainly does well if you add it into baked goods. You know, wild pawpaws with their bitterness actually can turn out well in a, in a tart or some such, you know, uh, cooked uh, recipe because pawpaws can be very elusive uh, when you heat them. Uh, the flavor kind of can get lost, but uh, you can do it. There is art. Uh, I dedicated a chapter in, in my book for the love of pawpaws, two recipes, everything from health food, vegan to, you know, delicious cheesecakes by well-known chefs in there using pawpaws. Uh, so it's quite diverse, but there's a little bit of an art when it comes to heating the pawpaw, which is why a lot of people love the ice cream because then pawpaw ice cream, you're getting the fresh flavors of the fruit and, you know, America's favorite food there, you know, the ice cream. That was going to be my next question was recipes and, and most people would prep them the same way they say a banana. So banana bread, muffins, I think a lot of those recipes are adaptable to pawpaws. But um, as you say, maybe losing a little bit of that flavor. 
Yeah, a lot of times if you if you say make a cookie or a bread, it, it kind of can just kind of taste almost banana like rather than than super pawpawy. Uh, but again, that's up to the to the baker. So the events that form around pawpaws every year due to COVID, how have you ad- adjusted those? Well, we have, like I say, 25 acres here, uh, lots of space. Uh, you know, our event isn't uh, isn't huge. Um, so we feel comfortable uh, and we'll be respectful with, you know, all of the, all the, you know, the requirements uh, that everyone's following. So we'll honor all of that and be outside and have space for everybody. And, uh, you know, I think probably be less people than usual anyway. Uh, but we, you know, the, the fruit's ripening and we want, we want to continue the celebration and sharing it. And, and so we're, we're going to be respectful and, but let, you know, let things, uh, you know, continue. I, I feel that, we, we, we need we need to also somehow keep coming together you know safely but it's important that that we that we just keep coming together I feel like there's some you know some loss here uh, in, in, in our in our sort of our humanity of gathering that that needs some balance like I say staying safe but still making efforts to you know to to gather so that's kind of where I'm coming from with it and yeah I think I think it's gonna go well and you have a webinar coming up? Yes. So those people who, who don't want a chance coming out uh, or live further afield, yes, I've got a webinar that I'm going to do. It was uh, actually supplanting a presentation and talk that I had lined up with the uh, U.S. Botanic Garden there in D.C. for the 11th uh, in September. And that got canceled, as many events have. It was it was going to be great. We were going to do a talk. We had a DC chef lined up. We were going to do all these tastings. So that's kind of too bad. Maybe it'll maybe it'll resurface next year. Uh, but so that there's not a loss, I've decided to do a webinar. Uh, pretty much same same time, same day. Uh, all about pawpaws. Uh, so it's going to be a presentation, really covering you know from seed to table. Uh, for anyone who's beginning or already, you know, experienced with pawpaws, there'll, there'll be something for everybody. And it's going to be recorded, so you don't have to be present, you know, during the scheduled hour. Uh, but if you register, uh, you'll automatically receive the recording of it, and you can watch it at your leisure. And if someone's listening to this after the fact, uh, I'll have it up there so that you can register or access uh, getting that webinar uh, pretty much at any time in the future online. Which brings us to sharing how our listeners can contact you and your social media. Yeah, so uh, my website's very educational and has, has a lot of what we're doing on it as well, and that's ecologiadesign.com. Uh, uh, that's a Portuguese word, ecologia, for ecology. Uh, so ecologiadesign.com is a great spot to learn and connect through to other social medias that we have. Uh, a lot of a lot of Facebook presence uh, under my name, uh, under the name of each one of my books. For the love of Paul Pauls uh, is a Facebook page. Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist is a Facebook page. Uh, and then, of course, my business, Ecologia, is a Facebook page. And then mine is a Facebook page. Um, so there's a lot there. Instagram. I, I tend to use Instagram a lot because it's so easy to to sort of capture and share. And then that goes through to Facebook, which I like. Um, so Instagram, uh, I'm at Permaculture Ninja. Uh, and you'll see a lot of colorful pictures and videos of, of uh, our, my work and our life. 
uh, our beautiful home family. So please, please uh, visit us there. And yeah, that's the main thing, you know, apart from, I'll throw out there, apart from the, the Pawpaw Festival, which is on the 19th of September, it's, it's the fifth annual. It's always been the third Saturday. Uh, and if life and the future continues well, then we'll keep doing it the third Saturday in September. Uh, but I'm also doing a couple of small tasting and tour events, which we're going to limit to 12 people uh, in September. So those who maybe don't want a festival or can't come can still have the experience. And then I'm also doing two nursery days, Paul Paul nursery days, uh, the first two Saturdays of September at our place, uh, which is an opportunity to come and, and see our trees and food forest, uh, pick up Paul Paul trees and fruit. I'll have both. So those are focused for fruit and trees. And again, you can learn more about that uh, on our site. Um, yeah, lots of ways. Wonderful, Michael. So uh, thank you so much for sharing about all things Pawpaw and your home base at Long Creek Homestead. Um, any final thoughts for listeners, somebody who maybe is in an urban location and doesn't have the space for pawpaws? Oh, wow. Um, well, some of the bushes, you know, some of the small berry bushes that I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the consort black currant is, is a small space, you know, a couple of these, you know, the berries in general are, are easy to grow uh, and often smaller. So you might consider doing that or, or fig in a pot. You know, a fig in a pot is always there. If you don't have, if you don't have any ground to plant in a fig in a pot or herb spirals, uh, you know, first chapter of my first book is about how to build herb spirals and they can go, you know, they can go over concrete, they can go anywhere. Um, and then you can sort of grow a cornucopia of things in there or strawberries, if you will. Um, so yeah, there's, I think, I think there's lots of ways to be creative, uh, even, even without, uh, even a patch of ground, uh, if you can get to some sunshine, uh, there's things to grow. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Michael. Yeah. Thanks, Kathy. I've, I've enjoyed it and hope to see you and, and many of the listeners, uh, out here at, uh, Long Creek Homestead. Plant Profile, Cup Plant. The cup plant, Sophium perfoliatum, is a perennial plant that is native to the southeastern United States and up into eastern Canada. It has a wide USDA zone range of 3 to 9. It blooms in mid to late summer and is a pollinator powerhouse. Dr. Paula Shrewsbury, an entomologist in the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources at the University of Maryland, has stated that cup plant is the best native pollinator plant for the state of Maryland. The small sunflower-like flowers are held on tall, sturdy stems. Along the stems are pairs of leaves that form the cups that give this plant its name. After a rain, you may see it retaining water in them. It needs full sun and is very low maintenance. It is an ideal plant for rain gardens as it is not picky about soil types. This is a plant that needs its space, so put it where it can spread out a bit. Cup plant also puts out deep roots, making it hard to move it, so pick its spot in your garden carefully. It can recede around a bit, and the young offshoots can be removed and planted or shared. If you want to collect seeds, do so in September and October. 
Then store the seeds in the refrigerator for a cold, moist stratification period of three months to simulate winter. Cup plant. You can grow that. The nose knows. At a recent garden book club gathering, we discussed Onward and Upward in the Garden by Catherine S. White. The first third of the volume is basically White's picks and pans of garden mail order catalogs of the mid 20th century. Thankfully, the remaining two thirds of the book turn White's laser like editorial eyes to the other garden related subjects of the times, from two strict flower arranging competitions held by garden clubs to the efforts and expense of maintaining a grass lawn. Her biggest obsession, though, is fragrance, and what an odd nose she has. Perhaps it's her decades-long smoking habit, but White bemoans the lost smells of many plants that are plenty pungent to my nose, petunias being one example. And she purports a love for several plant scents that I find quite offensive, such as mums and marigolds. Scent in the garden is a very personal thing. One gardener's ooh is another's ah. I was delighted to attend a talk by Jim Doremus last year. He's the gardener in charge of Brookside Gardens Fragrance Garden. And I heard his take on great plants for a scented garden. One of his favorites is Osmanthus, which has a powerful honey and apricot smell and is a signature scent in China. One of my favorite scented flowers is the hardy white water lily. Nymphia odorata, that's native to our region. Many are surprised to learn that they are fragrant, even though the Latin name should provide a major clue. Of course, plants are not fragrant for the gardener's sake, but for the enticement of the pollinators. The fact that they are a delight to us as well is a major side benefit. Take this time this summer to experience the sights and scents of your garden. Before I share what's blooming in my garden this week, I wanted to say a sincere thanks to Hadley Baker. She's been interning with us this summer and is a rising senior studying English and Spanish at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and will soon be returning there for her final year of studies. She's from Tacoma Park, Maryland, and her mother is a landscape designer in the area. Hadley has been helping recording and editing this podcast. Thank you so much, Hadley, for making it so much better than it would have been just on my own. And now for what's blooming in the garden. Every month on our blog, we share on Garden Bloggers Bloom Day. That's the 15th of the month. And Carol Michael hosts a blog roundup on her May Dreams Gardens blog and website of garden bloggers from all over the world who share what's blooming in their garden. So that's a great link to check out and see what's blooming for everyone. My list this month is actually much longer than I thought it was, so I'm going to read some of that off to you. Canna, Cleome, Calamintha, Allium, Nicotiana, Blue Lobelia, the Alba, and the Blue Form, 
Obedient Plant, Goldenrod, Black-Eyed Susan, Cup Plant, Coneflower, Butterfly Bush, Rose of Sharon, which is a double and sterile version, thank you, Hydrangea, various forms, Hosta, Blue Mist Shrub, also known as Caryopteris, Tall Sedum, Terenia, Petunia, Fuchsia, Bacopa, Impatiens, Begonia, and Alyssum. Of course, a lot of that list are annual flowers, and that's what fills up a lot of the color in my garden in the late summer. I like to cut a bunch of those and bring them in to enjoy inside as well, and hope you are doing the same. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.